Our sermon passage this week picks up where we left off last week. We're continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, True and Better. And this week we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that in these moments you would move by your spirit to illumine our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the riches of your grace in Jesus, um, that we might uh, have our hearts captured by your love for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was a kid, I played basketball. I wasn't very good. I was never first, second, third, whatever picked. I was short. I wasn't fast. I couldn't dribble. Had an okay shot sometimes. But needless to say, I was nobody's uh, star player by any means. And I remember one year in rec league, we went out for tryouts. And tryouts was this this big uh, group. The kids would get together and do drills, and the coaches would kind of select the players. And that year, I remember I went to my very first practice after these tryouts. And I looked around, and I knew all these kids because we grew up together. And all I could think was, we have a pretty terrible team. <laughs> I looked around, and I saw who was on my team, and I saw myself. And I thought, well, this is going to be a tough season. We might not win any games. And then our coach walked in. And I knew our coach. Our coach had a reputation in town for being a great coach, for really knowing basketball. And with him came his son, who was a fantastic basketball player. And suddenly I realized he was on our team too. And as we continued on in that season, this ragtag group of kids who I thought maybe we wouldn't win a game, we wound up winning the county championship. Because our coach made the difference. Our coach taught us how to be a team. Our coach, our leader, and us following after him made all the difference in the world. That's not unlike the experience of the disciples, the very first disciples of Jesus. In our passage, we meet the first two. Um, But to help us understand what's going on, uh, it, it might help us to understand kind of the dynamics of what it meant to be a follower of a teacher or or, or a follower of a rabbi. Back then, uh, followers of rabbis were selected at 13 years old. So a rabbi would seek and find the best and the brightest 13-year-old he could find. And they would become apprentices um, of the rabbi, in a sense. Um, And they would begin to follow the rabbi. They would leave their family. They would follow after the rabbi and learn his teachings and learn his way of life. But for those who weren't selected by the rabbis, who weren't the first picked, weren't the best and brightest, they would pick up the family trade. They would be overlooked, of course, by the rabbis. And they would just uh, 
they were relegated to a life of ordinary fishermanship, or they would be carpenters, or whatever the family trade may be. In our passage this morning, we meet three men, uh, Andrew, Peter, and an unnamed disciple um, who is actually the gospel writer here, John. All three had been overlooked already by other rabbis. They weren't the breast and the brightest. They weren't the ones that uh, rabbis were clamoring to pick for the team. They had been overlooked. They had been uh, left behind. And in the case of Peter, he was actually a man that was already married, already had a family. Uh, It was long past the time for him to be selected to be a follower of a great rabbi. And what we see here is that these left-behind folks, this ragtag group, not even JV, not picked for any team, when they are captured by a vision of who Jesus is, when they behold Jesus for who he is, it changes everything. Um, And we know, if we look down in church history, even our own uh, existence as a church today is so dependent on how God used these men and all their frailty and all their faults to build his kingdom. They were the overlooked team who who became the champions, (laughs) in a sense. And what we're going to do in the next three weeks, we're going to look at Jesus interacting with his first disciples. Uh, This morning, we're going to focus in especially on these first two, Andrew and the unnamed disciple who was John. And what we're going to see is a handful of things of what it means for us, whoever we are, even if we're overlooked, to behold Jesus to see Jesus for who he really is. That brings me to my first point. Seeing Jesus for who he really is means following him. It means following him. Our passage this morning picks up where last week left off. If you remember, we talked about John the Baptist last week. And we saw that John the Baptist had created quite a stir in his world. He had become this notable figure. He had this big ministry. He was preaching and baptizing, and a lot of people had begun to follow him. He had caused a quite a disruption to the point that the officials, the leaders of the people in Jerusalem, had sent uh, emissaries out to ask him what he was doing. Uh, Who are you that you would preach and baptize, not authorized by us? And when he's interrogated, as we saw last week, they ask him point blank, are you the Messiah? And in that moment is maybe the greatest temptation of John's life. He is faced with the opportunity to say, yes, I am the leader you've been looking for and to win all the fame, all the notoriety, all the platform he could ever want. But he deflects, and he deflects because he understands that his role is to point to Jesus because he, as John the Baptist, can do nothing for the greatest needs of people. He can do nothing to forgive sins. He can do nothing to transform hearts, but he can point to Jesus who can. He can point to Jesus who will Uh, in his taking on our sins, be able to forgive. He can point to Jesus who, in giving us the new life of the Holy Spirit, can transform our hearts. And so we see John the Baptist deflect. And that picks up here in our very first verse, in verse 35. He's standing there with two of his very own disciples, and he sees Jesus, and he points his disciples to, to Jesus and says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this has, before we jump in any further, this has big implications for us as a young church. Um, We are at the very beginning of a a new church that we hope will have a very long history that will have a huge impact in our area. And there's going to be a great temptation for us 
um, as God works through us, as God's grace becomes evident uh, in our own lives and in, in the impact that we have on other people, for us to uh, take credit for that. But our calling is like John the Baptist, is to point to Jesus. Because we can't do anything for people. We can be friends, but for the deepest needs that people have, the longings that they need answered, only Jesus can satisfy. And so we, like John the Baptist, point to Jesus. Um, so that brings us here to these two men uh, that John had pointed Jesus to. Look at verse 37. They hear John say, Behold the Lamb of God, and they understand. They understand that this means they can't just follow John anymore. They understand that beholding the Lamb of God, seeing Jesus for who he is, means they can't go back. It means a reorientation of their life. They had been left behind, and they had found maybe a, a kind of identity or a home there following John the Baptist. But now that they have be, they've beheld, they've seen Jesus for who they is, John's pointed them to him. It calls for a radical decision that ripples out into every area of who they are. And this is true of us as well. Even here in 2021, we cannot stare into the grace of God in Jesus Christ and shrug. We can't see the grace of God in Jesus Christ and turn away and just go back like nothing happened. No, the fact is that the grace of Jesus disrupts our complacency. It disrupts the things that we run to to find identity and meaning. His grace challenges and answers our deepest longings. When we see Jesus for who he is, who he reveals himself to be, we cannot turn away. Which I think is why Jesus turns to them in verse 38, look with me again, and he asks them a simple question. What do you want? Now, I don't think Jesus here is annoyed <laughs> that they're following after him and he turns around and says, what do you want? No, I think he, at the very beginning of this interaction with them, is getting to the heart of the matter, to the point. Because he doesn't ask them, what do you know? He doesn't want to be impressed and give them a quiz to show their knowledge. He doesn't ask them, what have you done with your life? No, and even though that may be important, he asks them, what do you want? He's addressing them and their longings and their desires and the things that they love. As the author James K. Smith has written, we are, in a sense, what we love. We become what we love. We become like the things we most desire. And the sad truth is, in our broken world, this often can mean a wreck in our lives. We long to feel happy. We long to combat the anxieties and stresses of our world, and so we turn to things like drugs or alcohol or sex to distract and to numb us. Or we long to feel secure and safe, so we turn to power or deceit and politic our way into one-upping each other in competition. We long to be seen and admired, and so we turn to chasing things like popularity and reputation. But all of these things wear us out because they cannot satisfy those longings. And so the very first words of Jesus to these two disciples, which are actually the very first words that he speaks in this gospel, are his words to even us this morning, to you. What do you want? What do you want? And the good news is this. Beholding Jesus for who he is, 
seeing Jesus for who he is, the eternal God who has sought us out by becoming one of us, who has arrived to redeem us from the power and penalty of sin, seeing Jesus as the God who has life in himself and invites us to love him first, we find that he is an inexhaustible fountain of grace and life for us. All the things that we chase after and we want that cannot satisfy Jesus can. He can give us the identity and the peace that addiction and power and popularity never can. We may want to seek a name. We can be baptized into his name and given a name uh, in, in his house. We can be adopted in his family. We may want security, but we can be received as daughters and sons of God by grace. You know, I think the two disciples here, when Jesus asked this question, they understand a bit of this. Because when he asked them, what do you want? Notice how they answer. They ask him, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And this is what it means to behold Jesus and to follow him. That we are chasing after a person that's not in the distance. We don't follow chasing after a person that's too far off that we can never catch up to. We aren't following after Jesus, clamoring to make a noise, hoping that he notices us. We follow someone who invites us to stay with him. As the Gospel of John has already said, he is put on flesh to dwell with us, to make his home with us. He now dwells with us. And this is... uh, We experience that in the here and now by His Holy Spirit, which is a down payment, as the New Testament talks about, a guarantee of the fullness of God's redemption when Jesus will dwell with us in the new heavens and new earth, and even the presence of sin will be undone, when all that is wrong will be made right, when all that is crooked will be made straight. But in the here and now, He dwells with us. Now, not from a distance, we follow after someone who is with us in His Holy Spirit. And in the here and now, our lives become a reality where at every moment we can reflect and meditate upon God's incredible love for us. That uh, when Jesus dwells with us by His Spirit, that becomes the, the, the baseline truth of who we are. That we are never then alone. We are never at a point when the most important thing about us is not that we're loved by God. In other words, to let me put that positively, We become people who the very definition of who we are is one who is beloved by God. That we can be assured in the here and now that the Holy Spirit is working to awaken our hearts to the life that is ours in Him. That we can lean upon the truth of His redemption of us. Not simply as a hypothetical truth, but as an objective reality that we're joined to by faith. And so His grace becomes the defining thing about who we are. I am a person who receives grace from God and that changes everything about me. I am a person who is beloved by God, no matter what anybody else might say about me or what my own heart might say about me. God dwells with me by His Holy Spirit and He is committed to giving me the grace that I need today, tomorrow, and forever. God's work of redemption in Jesus is not something that just happens out there. It's a grace that invades even the ordinary places of our lives. 
I think that's why it emphasizes what time it was that all this happened. Notice in verse 39 when it tells us uh, that it happened uh, at four in the afternoon. I think what it's pointing out is that this encounter that they had with Jesus was not at this special set-apart time. It wasn't at this incredible event that had happened. Uh, No, it was in the very ordinary time of the late afternoon that they had found God's grace in the very ordinary afternoon uh, of their lives. That ordinary time had been made extraordinary by God's grace. And so they go with him to stay where he is. And so seeing Jesus for who he really is means following him, but it also has strong implication for our relationship with other people, which we find in verses 40 through 42, where we learn that seeing Jesus for who he really is means bringing others to meet him. Let's read, actually, those verses again, 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. So the two who have beheld Jesus, which has led them to following him and orienting themselves to learn from him, going with him, that they, we see here that some of the after effects of this is inviting others to behold him as well, to see him for who he is. Now this begins, this inviting others to see, it begins a few verses before our passage this morning. We're actually at the beginning of our passage when John the Baptist points his disciples. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist beholds Jesus and cannot help but to declare his glorious praises. And he points these two others to him. And the two behold Jesus and it transforms their lives. And here in verse 40, one of these men, Andrew, finds his brother. The first thing he did is find his brother to tell him the news and bring him to Jesus. Notice the chain. John beholds Jesus and tells Andrew and the unnamed disciple. Andrew tells Peter. And Peter becomes the leader of the disciples, which we learn later on. And he tells untold numbers of people about Jesus. He plants churches and spends his life, literally spends his life, preaching the good news of Jesus so that other people may behold the reality of who Jesus is and be changed through him. Now, this chain of John the Baptist, the the two disciples, Andrew to Peter, and Peter on down through the ages is not just a neat story about the early disciples. Do you realize that this is almost like a family tree for us? This is the very beginning of how the good news came here to Dunn, North Carolina. See the connection? John, Andrew, Peter, untold numbers of people down to the people who told you and me about Jesus. Jesus took these men who were not the obvious selections, who had been overlooked by everybody else, and by giving them grace, the grace spilled over all the way to us, literally changing the trajectory of lives, changing the trajectory of the world. Now take a moment. Take a moment to think of the person who's most responsible for you beholding the beauty of Jesus. Now it's probably a handful of number of people, but the person most responsible. It may be a parent. It may be a dad or a mom. It may be a friend or a co-worker. It may be a pastor or a family member. But you've got somebody in mind. This is God's ordinary way of bringing people to himself. He works through very ordinary people in very ordinary ways to reveal 
the beauty and majesty of Jesus so that we might turn to him and find grace. And this teaches us that some, something that's emphatically true, that the gospel of Jesus is not just about us individually and God. It's also a message to and about us together. And this should be a great encouragement to us. God dignifies our lives by inviting us to be a part of his work, and he works through us. So be encouraged. Um, we can pray for those that we know that do not yet believe in Jesus. We can pray with confidence and love them well because we know that God so often uses the very ordinary words, the very ordinary actions of our lives to show himself to other people. We as a church can take heart that God is at work in and through us, even now in our very modest beginnings, whether we're watching this uh, online or we're in the front yard doing outside worship, even in these very modest beginnings, God is working through us to show himself to others, to bring his grace. For us, bringing people to meet Jesus is not about having airtight arguments. It's not about being the smartest or most well-resourced person in the room. Remember, as I mentioned at the beginning, the disciples of Jesus in the eyes of the world were no one's first pick. They weren't people that walked into the room and were instantly respected. In fact, they were looked down upon. For us, like for them, bringing others to meet Jesus means beholding Jesus and His grace and having his, our hearts captured, so captured, that we hold the door open for others to find this grace as well. And it rarely happens through arguments. It rarely happens actually in a planned way. We don't set apart a time and say at 7 p.m. I'm going to do evangelism. You know, some people might do that. But God usually works incrementally over time, a lot of times almost imperceptibly, imperceptibly to us. And sometimes it even happens through great pain. But most of the time it happens in incredibly ordinary ways like it does here when Andrew, captured by the good news of Jesus, has to find his brother and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Peter, we have found the one that we've been looking for. You know, next week we're going to look at Peter a little bit more, who we've just met here. And we're going to talk about how seeing Jesus for who he means being who he is means being transformed by him. But this morning, I'd like to invite you, um, whether you've had faith in Jesus for a very long time or you're still trying to figure out who he is, I'd like to invite you to come to him. To hear the voice of him who gave his life for our sins, to hear the voice of him who was raised to new life for our victory, calling to you, what do you want? And like the disciples here, Follow him. Come to him and find the grace that you need. And let's follow him together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. I pray in these moments that you would work in our hearts to call us to greater faith in you. Work in our hearts to renew us by your Holy Spirit. To be people who are oriented toward you, who follow after you. Um, to receive from you our inexhaustible fountain of grace, all that we need for life. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.